This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The early morning light slowly filtered down through the mist and penetrated the gusty winds. It illuminated the Itasca's deck with glorious bursts of color. Dawn in the equatorial islands was a beautiful sight, one that Richard Black, the American administrator of the territories, usually appreciated. But on July 2nd, 1937, his attention was elsewhere. He paced up and down the ship's cabin, waiting for a sign. His radio operators were glued to their headphones, furiously broadcasting onto every frequency they could think of. At 1900 hours Greenwich Mean Time, they heard a distinctive mid-Atlantic lilt. We must be on you, but cannot see you, but gas is running low, have been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. 27 minutes later, the voice came in once again. We are circling, but cannot see island, cannot hear you. Go ahead on 7,500 kilocycles with long count, either now or on schedule time on half hour. They could hear her clear as day now, finally. But it was becoming increasingly evident that Amelia Earhart, world-famous aviatrix, still couldn't hear a single word from them. She was lost somewhere out there, above the endless stretch of water. Amelia's plane and body were never found. According to the Navy, that was because she crashed to the ocean floor. But anything can happen out on the wild, unobserved territory of open water. Maybe no one found a body because there wasn't one to find. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. 
You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first episode on Amelia Earhart, the iconic, record-breaking aviatrix who became a symbol of American adventure, innovation, and feminism. Born in 1897, she set flight record after record at a time when women were widely considered best suited for life in the home, and then used her platform to advocate for other women. That is, until she disappeared on July 2nd, 1937. This week, we'll be covering the official story behind that disappearance. During an ambitious record-setting global circumnavigation, Amelia and her navigator fell prey to technical difficulties and crashed into the ocean. Amelia's plane was never found, and not everyone is so convinced that simple technical issues could lead to the death of the greatest pilot of her time. Next week, we'll look into some of the most likely theories these skeptics have proposed explaining the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart was born in Atchison, Kansas on July 24, 1897, and spent her early years hopping around towns in the Midwest. Throughout many of those years, her family was in deep financial straits. But neither those difficult conditions nor the sexist prejudices of her time stopped young Amelia from dreaming big about her future. She kept a scrapbook of magazine clippings that depicted successful, inspiring women in professional fields. They were a relative rarity in the early decades of the 20th century when she was growing up. But thanks to those clippings, she could remind herself they were out there. She wasn't afraid of the scrapes and bruises it might take to achieve those dreams. Always a tomboy, Amelia preferred to climb trees or explore, eschewing traditionally feminine activities for outdoor play. But forging your own way against cultural norms is no easy path, and in the early years of her adulthood, Amelia found herself working in traditionally feminine fields. She worked as a nurse during World War I, briefly took paramedic courses, and eventually found employment as a social worker. None of these jobs ignited her passion, however. Then, on December 28, 1920, when Amelia was 23 years old, she got the opportunity to ride in an airplane. This is how she explained the experience. By the time I had got two or three hundred feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. She dedicated herself to pursuing that dream. First, she scrimped and saved to take flying lessons. In July of 1921, she bought her very own plane, a second-hand Kenner Airster two-seater. It was in that plane that she broke her first women's aeronautic record on October 22, 1922, by rising to 14,000 feet. Well, that was just the first of many more to come. Her early success as a pilot drew the attention of a small group of backers trying to organize the first transatlantic flight by a female pilot in 1928. 
they'd had trouble finding an eager contender. Three of their previous candidates had died that year while attempting to set the record. But Amelia jumped at the opportunity. The flight was a grand success, and it made Amelia Earhart a famous name, especially after one of the backers of the flight, publisher George Putnam, threw his considerable weight behind the cause. Putnam was a savvy businessman and publicist, and he knew that an intrepid flying girl was a highly marketable image. He published a book written by Amelia about flying just a few months after her transatlantic voyage. But he quickly had another reason to become Amelia's biggest fan. He fell in love with her. The couple married in 1931. Amelia now had George's support as she went on to set record after record in the following years and as she used her growing platform to advocate for women in the workforce and increased gender equality. By 1937, she wasn't just one of the most accomplished record-breaking female pilots in the world. She was one of the most accomplished pilots in history of any gender. Her fame got her invitations to lecture, to write for magazines, to design clothes. She even joined the staff at Purdue University as a career advisor to female students. But always, her heart was in aviation. And in 1937, at almost 40 years old, she set her sights back towards the skies. On May 31, 1937, Amelia prepared to embark on her most ambitious flight yet, a circumnavigation around the world. She and Fred Noonan, her navigator, had tried to start this trip in March, three months before, and that effort had been definitively botched. They'd only made it from Oakland, California, to their first stop, Hawaii, before encountering technical difficulties that stymied their second takeoff to Howland Island. And not only had they failed to make it out of Hawaii, they'd also severely damaged her Lockheed Electra plane in the process. But this was a fresh start. They were taking off from Miami, just as summer started to pour down her happy rays. Takeoff was set for early the next day, on June 1st, 1937. The Electra's twin engines had been repaired, and Amelia was confident they were in solid working order. She'd already broken record after record, and this would be yet another. She would be the first woman to accomplish a circumnavigation. And she couldn't be more confident about her partner in the effort, Fred Noonan, the former chief navigator of Pan Am, the largest international airline of the era. Though there's a lack of contemporary evidence to support it, rumor was that Fred had something of a drinking problem. Either way, Amelia trusted him to keep it together. She knew he was an ace at his work. His celestial navigation skills were legendary. Amelia felt the stirring excitement that always affected her before a flight. In her own words, I have a feeling that there's just about one more good flight left in my system, and I hope this trip is it. She'd be more right than she could have ever imagined. On the morning of June 1st, Amelia, Fred, and a small entourage of their friends and family woke at 3 a.m., long before sunrise. Amelia jammed the last of her personal items into a small suitcase. A few shirts, coveralls, two pairs of pants. Nothing much. Mainly, what they were trucking out to the car were final bits of gear, large two-quart thermoses, pith helmets, 
lightweight, cloth-covered headgear often worn by explorers, Fred's portable navigation instrument, an octant, and a machete in case they were forced to land in the jungle. The party wove its way through the hotel lobby, packed with journalists even at this ungodly hour. They clamored for a statement from Amelia, but the time for statements and chatter was over. The party pushed its way out the door. It was still before 4 a.m. when they arrived at a local Greek joint for breakfast. A hearty meal of eggs, bacon, and potatoes streamed out of the kitchen onto their table. For Amelia, two thermoses were filled with hot tomato juice, something to keep her warm on the flight. Fred, shaking his head and laughing at his partner's strange tastes, asked for his thermos to be filled with coffee. The meal was jittery. This was no small endeavor. Amelia was glowing with excitement and anticipation, as was Fred, and their entire party was just as thrilled to be swept up in the whirlwind of excitement, adventure, and female empowerment. But there was some anxiety peppered amongst the excitement. George Putnam, Amelia's husband and the publisher of her autobiographies, grasped his wife's hand tightly. She was one of the best pilots alive. He knew that, and he trusted her. In Amelia's words, their marriage was a partnership with dual control. Well, that was a rare thing in the 1930s. But George, like Amelia herself, knew that even the best pilot could fall prey to any number of challenges in the open skies, weather, mechanical issues, and even human error. The couple's fingers grew sweaty in their vice-like grasp. But Amelia wouldn't stay on the ground because of fear. Not now, not ever. In fact, she couldn't help but feel the draw of that fear. The thrill of danger had its own special appeal. They arrived at the airport just after breakfast. It was still dark, but the journalists were waiting. They watched the flashes of their bulbs and the beams of their headlights as Amelia, Fred, George, and their friends and family pushed the small Lockheed Electra out of the hangar. Police arrived and cordoned off the area as the crowd swelled to 500 and the equipment was loaded up. Amelia climbed onto the plane. She slowly warmed up the engines then jumped back out to consult with the attending engineer about one last small repair. Pre-dawn light started to glow as he finished up his task. Finally, there was nothing left to prepare. Amelia and Fred made eye contact, nodded, and gave a round of tight hugs. Then they clambered into the hold. George climbed up after them and leaned his head in to give Amelia one final lingering kiss. He was looking increasingly anxious, staring at her intently, as if to impress her face on his mind. He knew Amelia's skill better than anyone, but he knew this was a dangerous flight. Anything could happen. His heart was beating as fast as a drum, and his eyes were starting to water as he reluctantly stepped down from the plane. Amelia offered a confident smile, waved, and then closed the hatch. It was 6.04 a.m. The sun was just peeking up onto the horizon, and Amelia Earhart and Fred Noonan were off on their journey. The skies were clear. It was the auspicious beginning of what would have been a 29,000-mile journey. But 
it wouldn't work out quite as expected. Coming up, the journey continues smoothly until problems start to arise. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. At dawn on June 1st, 1937, Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, flew out of Miami for the start of their global circumnavigation. At 40, Amelia was already a world-famous pilot thanks to her record-breaking flights across the Atlantic and Pacific. She saw this trip as one last opportunity to have the adventure of a lifetime and break a record while she was at it. And at the beginning of the journey, that seemed to be the likely outcome. The first leg of the journey was an easy eight-hour, 1,000-mile flight to San Juan, Puerto Rico. From there, they flew to Caripito, Venezuela, then another 1,330 miles to Paramaribo in what is now Suriname. Amelia, as always, was exhilarated to be in the air. And the public was just as excited to see her there. At every step of the journey, Amelia and Fred encountered welcoming faces and urgent requests that they accept local hospitality in all its forms. Sometimes that meant a place to stay and a good home-cooked meal, sometimes free gear. Often it meant a welcome from a local governor, ambassador, or another prominent local figure. The support and excitement didn't diminish as they traveled onwards. Fortaleza in northeast Brazil, then Natal, 275 miles down the coast, their last stop before heading across the Atlantic. They took the most direct rather than the most established routes on each leg. That meant they were often flying over dense and often uninhabited jungle, with not a soul in reach by radio or even, if they were to land, by foot. Fred wrote home to a friend, Helen Day, about the sights. Nothing was visible but solid carpets of treetops, with frequent wide, winding rivers cutting through them. The weather was uniformly good. Over the Orinoco River, we encountered a few heavy tropical downpours, but were able to circumvent them. Amelia and Fred's trip was going well, despite the risky routes they chose. They felt confident when, in the pitch-black early hours of June 7th, they touched off from Natal, Brazil, for their transatlantic flight. 
On the other side of the journey was Dakar, the capital of what was then French West Africa. The weather was fair. The air was clear for a time. As they approached the African continent, a thick fog rose up, obscuring their view. Fred instructed Amelia to turn 36 degrees south, but she doubted his instructions and instead veered north. As they emerged from the fog and determined their location, it became clear that Fred had been right and Amelia had been wrong. Luckily, this combination of natural obstacles and human error didn't result in disaster. The Electra landed in St. Louis, Senegal, and the next day, Fred and a contrite Amelia flew the 163 miles south to their original destination, Dakar. This time, they arrived without difficulty. They shook off the previous day's error. That was flying. Problems arose and mistakes happened. There would be more, but Amelia and Fred felt sure that just like with this little glitch, they'd be able to solve them all and come out the other side on top. Their next destination was Gao on the Niger River, a 1,140-mile flight which they made in just under eight hours. They spent the night in the open desert to mitigate the heat. Amelia, lying beneath the enormous open sky with its glittering cast of stars, felt almost as close to the heavens as she did in her plane. It was as exhilarating as it was beautiful. Next stop was Fort Lamy in French Equatorial Africa, which is today Chad. They flew low over the Niger River to get there, the steam from swampy forests rising up and enveloping them as they went. The heat was so intense it felt like a physical object, a wall between them and their destination. But they pushed on. After Fort Lamy was El Fashir in the Sudan, 690 miles and a three-hour flight away. Then further and further east, Khartoum still in the Sudan, across the Red Sea, further still to Asab in what's now Eritrea. From there, they commenced the long 1,920-mile journey to Karachi. En route, Amelia encountered a technical difficulty. The manual mixture control lever for the starboard engine jammed. She tugged at the lever, but it wouldn't move. There was nothing to do but compensate however she could and hope for the best. Since she couldn't regulate the flow of fuel to the engine manually, she reduced speed to economize, flying at an average of 147 miles an hour. At that speed, the journey took a little over 13 hours, a long trip. But it came smoothly to a close. The gentle pace got them to Karachi with a bit of fuel to spare. In Karachi, both Amelia and Fred were checked out by British doctors while the plane's health was tended to. The results all around were positive. Amelia and Fred were in robust healthfulness beyond question. And the plane, Amelia explained in a phone call to George, was doing all right too. Its hiccups were all getting fixed without issue. Well, there's actually a recording of this phone call because George placed it out of the offices of the Herald Tribune. The transcript shows that Amelia was swell, never better. And replying to George's query if she was having fun, she responded, It's a grand trip. We'll do it again together sometime. 
All, it seemed, was well, as Amelia and Fred took off from Karachi for Calcutta, a 1,390-mile trip. But a second phone call between Amelia and her husband after their arrival suggests something may have started to go wrong. This call, unlike the first, wasn't recorded, but this time, on George's end, two other men were listening in, and all three agree on what they heard Amelia say. I'm starting to have personnel trouble. George immediately assumed Fred was drinking. He urged Amelia to stop the trip and not take any unnecessary risks. She brushed him off. I have only one bad hop left, and I'm pretty sure I can handle the situation. Well, not everyone is convinced that the trouble she was having was personnel trouble. Personnel, after all, sounds a lot like personal. George and his companions, however, all reported the line to Calcutta was perfectly clear. They knew what Amelia was saying, or rather, they inferred. She never did clarify exactly what the problem was. George simply assumed she was hinting at Fred's drinking. What we know for sure is that, true to Amelia's words, despite the problems, the Lockheed Electra took off from Calcutta on June 17th, straight into monsoon season. The rain had already started in Calcutta. The storm was projected to get worse. So if they wanted to go, they had to go right then. They took off at dawn. The rain was battering the small Lockheed Electra like a toy. But Amelia, in the cockpit, was as calm and focused as ever. Still, they were forced to land after a mere 335 miles in Akyab, Burma, now Sitway, Myanmar. In Akyab, the downpour only got more intense. Paint started chipping off the Electra's wings. But Amelia was recklessly determined to speed ahead of the storms. Perhaps she was anxious to keep the trip moving in the face of her personnel problems. Or perhaps her taste for risk-taking was simply showing its full face. Either way, the same day as it landed in Akyab, the Lockheed Electra took off into the storm. Even Amelia's determination, however, could not force the plane through this storm. They grounded after, in Fred's words, two hours and six minutes of going nowhere. On the 18th, they tried again. This time, they made it to Rangoon, which was glimmering with evening sun as they touched down. The next few flights went smoothly. First, the quick hop to Bangkok, and then to Singapore, then Bangdung, in what is now Indonesia. They were out of the monsoon season's path, But as that jammed lever on the trip to Karachi had indicated, it wasn't only nature's fury that could get in the way of this trip. Soon after the Electra's arrival in Bandung on June 20th, Amelia received a call from George. They chatted about the arrangements he was making with the Navy and Coast Guard for her next flights all over water, from Leh, New Guinea, to Howland Island, and from Howland to Honolulu. It's a bit odd that it was George who was attending to these arrangements. He knew nothing about the technical details of radio frequencies and other direction finders a small plane needed on daring overwater flights. 
The Navy and Coast Guard personnel he was liaising with did understand those details, of course. And it's likely he and Amelia assumed their expertise would be enough to ensure appropriate plans were laid. But this was a risk, and not a risk that Amelia had ever taken before. In the past, she'd had a fellow pilot who was familiar with the intricacies of radio communication make these arrangements. Her reasons for changing up her regular procedure seems to have been practical. Her habitual contact wasn't available for the job anymore, and George would do in a pinch. Or so it seemed. Meanwhile, the plane was stuck in the repair shop. Some of its long-distance flying mechanisms were acting up. Amelia and Fred touristed around Bangdung and the surrounding areas until Saturday, June 26th, waiting for the issues to be resolved. Finally, as Fred reported in a letter home, the plane was functioning perfectly now, thank goodness for the Dutch mechanics. Amelia gave George one last telephone call. She assured him the plane was in good working order. He told her he'd be waiting for her in Oakland, California. It was time to recommence the journey. The Electra took off early in the morning on June 27th. They spent the night on Kupang on Timor Island, then on the 28th continued to Port Darwin, Australia. There, the blown fuse of Amelia's radio receiver was replaced. An important fix, since a radio receiver needs to be in good working order for a pilot to receive messages and direction-finding radio signals. It's worth pointing out here that a blown fuse is often the result of a deeper mechanical issue. So while the Australian mechanics fixed the receiver's immediate problem, there may have been an underlying issue that was still unresolved and could lead to the fuse blowing once again. Regardless of that risk, at dawn on the 29th, Amelia and Fred continued on. The 1,200-mile, 7-hour, and 43-minute journey deposited them in Ley, New Guinea. Ley, the headquarters of Guinea Airlines, proved as welcoming as every city Fred and Amelia had stopped in before. Amelia was invited to dinner by the manager of the airline, while Fred went out for a night on the town with some other locals, including the superintendent of civil aviation. But once again, the pair weren't able to leave on schedule the following day. They were, once again, having radio issues which impaired Fred's ability to set his chronometers. The chronometers told him the time and helped him calculate longitude, all necessary for accurate navigation. It's not entirely clear what this radio issue was, but it seems likely that it involved the same radio receiver that was repaired in Australia. Without that receiver, Fred certainly would have had trouble setting his chronometers. Either way, it needed fixing before they could leave. But there were a few other things holding them back in addition to the radio, according to a telegram Amelia sent George. The telegram reads, Radio misunderstanding and personnel unfitness probably will hold one day. A radio misunderstanding here likely refers to the news Amelia received from the Coast Guard about the radio frequency capabilities of the Itasca, a U.S. ship which was meant to help guide her and Fred to Howland Island. 
Amelia had thought that the Itasca would take radio bearings on her on 3,105 kilocycles, a kilocycle being an old-fashioned measure of frequency, or essentially a radio channel. But the ship didn't actually have equipment calibrated to that frequency. This was a major communication problem, one that there's little evidence was resolved. Personnel on fitness, meanwhile, as on the phone, is a bit more mysterious. It could be a misspelling of personal, but the fact that the word consistently seems to be personnel across the phone call and telegram only increases the likelihood that Amelia did, after all, mean personnel. Just like on the telephone call, it seems most likely that it is a reference to Fred's drinking. Well, that makes sense, considering the fact that he'd been out drinking the night before the telegram was sent. But Amelia and Fred's activities around Lay during the delay don't suggest that Fred was severely hungover. The pair repacked the plane, and then Fred drove them around in a truck to sightsee. All we know for sure is that something was wrong. And that Amelia and Fred took off for Howland Island anyway. Coming up, Amelia's historic global circumnavigation comes to a tragic, abrupt halt. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, back to the story. Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan, were experiencing some technical difficulties in Ley, New Guinea. There were communication issues with a ship meant to guide them through radio signals. And there was some kind of so-called personnel unfitness at play. They stayed in port an extra day as they tried to sort these issues out. But on July 2nd, 1937, they prepared to take off for their next destination, the tiny Howland Island, one tiny speck of land in the vast expanse of the Pacific Ocean. It was just two miles long by half a mile wide. Both had an early night and woke up healthy and fit. At least, so they look in the smiling photos taken in front of their plane, the now infamous Lockheed Electra. The plane was full up with gasoline and their radios apparently in good working order. The wind was high, but nowhere near the levels of the monsoons they'd already flown through, and it was apparently abating. The USS Ontario was positioned halfway between Ley and Howland Island, and the USS Itasca was located on the shores of Howland. These ships would help guide them on the 2,556-mile trip. At precisely zero Greenwich Mean Time, 10 a.m. lay time, they ascended. 
thanks to the headwinds, or winds blowing directly at the head of the plane, it was slow going. After seven hours and 20 minutes of flight, Fred calculated that going at their current speed, they had another 13 hours before they'd reach Howland. Well, that meant more than 21 hours in the air. But it wasn't as if there were plenty of alternative landing points in the Pacific Ocean. They'd have to soldier on. And they had the fuel to make it, with just a bit to spare in case navigation didn't go smoothly. As the flight wore on, Amelia sent out radio broadcasts to the Itasca, which was waiting for her at Howland Island. The ship was communicating with her on 3,105 kilocycles, the frequency she had anticipated, and 14 hours and 15 minutes into the flight, the Itasca received the first of a series of messages from Amelia. Cloudy weather, cloudy. One hour later, 15 hours and 15 minutes into the flight, she sent another message, again reporting that it was overcast. She asked the Itasca to broadcast on 3,105 kilocycles on the hour and half hour. About an hour later, she broadcast once more. But this message only barely reached its destination. Her voice signals were unreadable on the Itasca. As she drew closer, however, her signal got clearer, and 16 hours and 44 minutes into the flight, the Itasca received her transmission. She wanted bearings or directions on 3,105 frequency and said she would whistle into the microphone. A few minutes later, she called again, announcing that she was about 200 miles out, then gave her whistle. This is when Richard Black, the American administrator of the Equatorial Islands, started to get concerned. They were radioing her on the 3,105 frequency every half hour, as she'd requested about an hour and a half earlier, although their direction finder only worked on 500 kilocycles. In fact, in their messages to her, they were asking her to tune into that 500 kilocycle direction finder. But she wasn't receiving those messages. And little did the Itasca know that her plane didn't even have proper equipment to receive transmissions from their 500 kilocycle direction finder. A half hour later, 17 hours and 15 minutes into the flight, Amelia radioed to ask for bearings a third time. Please take bearing on us and report in half hour. I will make noise in microphone about 100 miles out. Something was wrong. She clearly wasn't receiving their messages, even though they could hear her just fine. 17 hours and 45 minutes into the flight, another message came in. This one tinged with an air of desperation. We are circling but cannot see island cannot hear you, go ahead on 7,500 kilocycles with long count either now or on schedule time on half hour. Finally, at 19 hours, 33 minutes into the night, for the first and only time, Amelia received a transmission. She replied to the Itasca, Earhart calling Itasca, we received your signals, but unable to get minimum. Please take bearings on us and answer on 3,105 kilocycles. 24 hours and 14 minutes into the flight, 
One more message made it from Amelia to the Itasca. We are on the line of position 157-337. We'll repeat this message on 6210 kilocycles. We are now running north and south. Then, Itasca's radios went silent. An hour and a half after Amelia's last transmission, the Itasca reported Amelia's non-arrival to fleet headquarters, along with a weather report of just how clear the skies around them were. If Amelia and Fred had been close to Howland, even if they were a bit off course, they should have seen the island. If not, the Itasca was releasing a long plume of smoke into the air visible for miles out. They should have at least seen that. The Itasca started a search immediately, first to the northwest, the only area near the island with some clouds. It seemed the most likely place for Amelia and Fred to have gotten lost. The search parties were tense, but not hopeless. If Amelia and Fred had run out of gas and been forced to land in the ocean, they had a raft stocked with food and water, and it's likely they would have been able to get out of the downed plane and into the boat safely. But even if Amelia had made a smooth landing into the water, rough waves could have prevented them from making it onto the raft. This was the mid-Pacific, after all. Or even worse, the sharks and barracudas swarming these parts of the ocean could have gotten to them. As night fell, the search continued, hope sinking with every hour that passed. Meanwhile, a Navy plane was starting the flight out from Hawaii to join the search. It left Honolulu at 7 p.m., planning to arrive at Howland around dawn and then spend the following day searching for the plane. By the following evening, it planned to land in the sea and tie onto the Itasca. But like Amelia and Fred's before them, this flight did not go to plan. The weather started to deteriorate as the plane made its way to Howland, devolving into a mess of snow, sleet, and lightning. The Itasca radioed that a tropical front had moved in, causing 10-foot waves. It would be impossible for the military plane to land on the water and tie onto the Itasca safely the following night. They had to turn around. During their aborted flight, however, the pilots continually sent out radio requests that Amelia send her so-called carrier wave, which meant they wanted her to press her microphone. Such a signal would indicate that she was still out there, still alive, if nothing more. And finally, the plane did receive an answer, a series of dashes. The response was hopeful, but it wasn't conclusive. It could have been from someone other than Amelia, anywhere out there in the Pacific. Regardless, the plane had to turn around, and the Itasca, flashing its floodlights across the dark ocean surface, found nothing. The search went on in the following days and weeks. It would become the most extensive air and sea search in naval history at the time. By Tuesday, July 6th, the Itasca had searched 3,000 miles in daylight and 1,500 miles at night. Planes searched the Phoenix Island region to the southeast of Howland, then the Gilbert Islands, 600 miles west of Howland. In the end, a cut of the Pacific Ocean roughly the size of Texas was inspected. 
Well, several more apparent radio signals from different areas were detected, but they all turned out to be false alarms, as far as the search parties could determine. Everyone came back empty-handed. On July 19, 1937, after deploying 10 vessels, 4,000 crewmen, and 65 aircraft, and spending $4 million, the United States government called off the operation. The Navy concluded that Amelia and Fred had crashed into the water and never even made it onto their lifeboat. If they had, there would have been some sign of it. So, what happened? In terms of the crash, almost everybody agrees that it was a technical or communication problem. First, there was the confusion about the direction-finding radio frequencies used by the Electra and the Itasca. Then, it seems likely that the radio reception mechanism that was seemingly repaired in Ley wasn't, in fact, functional. Amelia wasn't receiving any of the Itasca's messages, despite the fact that the ship transmitted on every radio frequency they could. The plane almost certainly ran out of gas before it could locate Howland and crashed into the Pacific Ocean. As the official story has it, Amelia and Fred either died in the impact or drowned shortly after the plane sank. But the question the official record leaves tantalizingly unanswered is... Where exactly did that plane go down? And if the search parties didn't find a single scrap of debris floating in the water, how do we know they drowned at all? Next week, we'll explore three main alternative theories about what exactly happened to the intrepid aeronauts. Our first theory is that Amelia and Fred flew into Japanese-controlled territory when they couldn't locate Howland Island. The Japanese took them prisoner and then either executed the pair or forced Amelia to work as one of the infamous Tokyo Roses, transmitting propaganda broadcast to Allied soldiers stationed in the Pacific during World War II. Our second theory also posits that Amelia was taken prisoner by the Japanese, but she was actually on a secret mission spying on them for the United States. When her mission was completed, she came home to the U.S. and started a new life as Irene Bolum. Our third theory, which eventually gained traction with illustrious folks like Hillary Clinton, argues that Amelia and Fred landed on Nakumaroro Island, 350 miles southwest of Howland, and lived for a time as castaways. Some of these theories are more credible than others, but... They're all fascinating and indicative of the admiration Amelia Earhart inspired throughout her life. It's only fitting that her departure was just as extraordinary as everything else about her. for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. 
to stream conspiracy theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap browse, and type conspiracy theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Nora Battelle and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 